You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 27th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. A heavy haze of grey smoke has hung over Porto Velho for days. A sprawling city of half a million people on the front line of the battle against some of the worst Amazon fires many here can remember. Our news panel, which today consists of Tim Marshall, former diplomatic editor of Sky News, and Oscar Juadiola Rivera, professor in law at Birkbeck, University of London, will be discussing the devastating fires in Brazil and asking why the country's president is so reluctant to accept outside help. We'll also look at Donald Trump's approach to dealing with Iran after Tehran says talks are off the table without sanctions relief, and Johnson & Johnson, which Oklahoma has blamed in part for fueling an opioid epidemic by deceptively marketing addictive painkillers. We'll also hear why a crackdown on retailers in public spaces ought to be a cause for concern. A good vendor, whether selling frosty beer or a range of newspapers, creates vibrancy and an essential public service. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. We'll begin by looking at Brazil. Yesterday, the G7 in Biarritz offered 22 million US dollars towards the extinguishing of the wildfires currently besetting the Amazon rainforests. It was an amount of money unserious enough to raise suspicions that a serious response was not expected, and indeed there hasn't been one. Brazil's government has rejected the money. Various Brazilian politicians have harumped that the fires are all either under control or not as bad as they look. President Jair Bolsonaro has accused the G7 of behaving like imperial overlords, and his chief of staff has ungallantly noted France's inability to stop Notre Dame from burning down. Monocle's Lucinda Elliott has been reporting on the fires. She describes what she has seen. A heavy haze of grey smoke has hung over Porto Velho for days, a sprawling city of half a million people, on the front line of the battle against some of the worst Amazon fires many here can remember. The weather, according to residents, has been oddly hot in recent weeks, with strange winds blowing in from all directions, not only from within the state of Rondonia, but also neighbouring Bolivia and other Brazilian states burning in the Amazon basin. We arrived on Thursday where a strange light, almost similar to that of an eclipse, could be seen. And despite heavy rains on Sunday, smoke forced the airport to close temporarily on Monday morning. Driving further out of town towards the border with Bolivia, Cattle stood on scorched land, fires burning up ahead. Over the past century, people have come to Porto Velho, a port on the banks of the massive Madeira River, in search of rubber and gold. More recently, farmers have migrated to the area, felling the surroundings ancient trees and clearing land for cattle pastures, and over the past decade, soybean production, much of which is destined for China. It is in those small farms that they are burning around the city. Sometimes the fires are deliberately started to clear fields to prepare for a new crop. Farmers say it's faster than cutting down trees. At other times, fresh areas of the pristine forest are being illegally cut down. Any trees that can't be sold for lumber are thrown onto huge bonfires. Accompanying a team of firefighters who assist the blazers, the local fire brigade admitted to us that it's totally ill-prepared to deal with the problem. A team of 30 firefighters patrols the entire city and its outskirts, responding to warnings of encroaching fires from concerned residents. 
the number of incoming calls has risen already by 370% this month alone compared to last August. This summer has been a huge challenge. We're not even near the start of the wet season. One, fireman said, face covered in soot, with a makeshift cloth to protect him from the smoke. Another young female firefighter who'd been working in the city for five years said the fines that could be imposed on residents and farmers were small, the equivalent of about 20 euros, and posed no deterrent. Planes to help put out bigger forest fires on the city outskirts began to circle this week in the region as part of a new urgent request made by the state. We spotted several today and yesterday afternoon. Residents, however, doubt how effective they will be and said that the government reaction was too little too late. Particularly as next month in September, it tends to get even hotter. For Monocle in Porto Velho, I'm Lucinda Elliott. Was Monocle's Lucinda Elliott reporting from Brazil? Uh, Oscar, first of all, the response from Brazil to the G7's $22 million, uh, I paraphrase somewhat, take this money and shove it. Was that the response the G7 were expecting? Well, obviously, it's the response that should be expected from uh, someone like Bolsonaro. But uh, rather than dismissing his response as, uh, you know, just uh, more lies and irrationality, we should take him seriously because uh, uh, there are two two consequences to this uh, response. On the one hand, he wants to further militarize the border uh, between Brazil, Bolivia, countries such as Colombia and so on and so forth, so as to expel NGOs, uh, make sure he can shield the uh, interests of the extracting industries there. I mean, there is a, the economics of this are more important. The economy is not working well. He knows that has a political uh, uh, eco. He saw it in Argentina. He wants to avoid that. The second leg to this, uh, to his argument is he wants to uh, cut any possible connections between the communities and movements which are resisting there and the urban movements that uh, in the past, you know, the con- that connection in the past uh, propped up the the Workers' Party. That's uh, So there's, uh, there's economics and politics uh, involved in this uh, response. Uh, Tim, if we look at these uh, outbursts by Jair Bolsonaro and his chief of staff, who I, who I do want to mention by name, for his name is Onyx Lorenzoni. And I really wish my name was Onyx Lorenzoni. I might fill in the forms later this afternoon. Um, Is there a messaging strategy when they say, we don't want your money, you can't even stop your own cathedrals from burning down, you're behaving like the conquistadors, who do you think you are, etc.? Oscar, what is Spanish for screw you? Because <laughs> that's what they're saying. Jodete. Thank you. Please, chaps, this is a family programme. Indeed. Um, Lo siento. There, of course, yeah, there's a strategy, and I agree with everything Oscar said, because, um, you know, this wasn't just some flip remark. Bolsonaro was elected uh, as a nationalist, and he's governing as a nationalist. These were nationalistic uh, responses. Don't you come and tell us how to take care of our rainforest, etc. Don't you come and try to tell us how not to develop. Uh, Don't you understand that a lot of the fires that are burning are on already cleared, etc., etc., etc. And it will play well to enough of the uh, electorate that he will do okay. And the money was, I mean, it was nothing. It was, I mean, it yeah, is that beans. Was, that wasn't serious. Yeah. Yeah. 20 million? Come on. So a lot of people uh, in this country say, oh, Boris Johnson is the British Trump. I, I think that's absolute nonsense. He's 
nothing like Trump. Of course, Bolsonaro is, he is the not British Bolsonaro. Uh, no, he's not. He's not. However, however, Bolsonaro. I thought that's where you were going. There no, for a second. Bolsonaro is much closer to the Trump model. He is quite happy to flick the finger to say these outrageous things. I mean, what he said about, what, what he supported said about Macron's wife is disgusting. Oh, yeah, but that's, Absolutely yeah, you're disgusting. Right there. That's, that's but but he, he doesn't care. And that's why I think he's a little bit, you know, he was called the Latin American Trump. Now, obviously, there's differences and nuance, but I think he's far more of a, of a model to, to Trump, o- than Oscar. O- on that point, Tim raises about him being a a nationalist whose whole thing is saying the world doesn't need to tell us how to protect the rainforest. Is it weird, not just in Bolsonaro's case, but among populists general generally, that they don't hit the environmentalism thing harder? Because in a way, it seems like an easy win for them. If Bolsonaro went in completely the opposite direction and said, you know, the Amazon is, is Brazil's great natural treasure, which is true, uh, and that it is our trust to protect this global asset for the world, which is also true, wouldn't that play just as well with exactly the same people he thinks the opposite plays well with? It would. Only that uh, we should not forget that these uh, uh, white nationalists are deeply racist. And let me repeat that again. They are very racist and they reflect uh, that kind of uh, racism, which is deep seated in Latin American institutions. I mean, we Latin Americans would like to think that uh, racism is only a U.S. problem. It is not. It is as ingrained in Latin America as it would be in the south of the United States. And Bolsonaro not only represents that, he knows that also, uh, you know, gives them uh, political profit. So he plays also that card. And the environment in Latin America is a political issue that is very close, not only to the plight of uh, indigenous movements or and or landless movements, which are politically much more significant in that part of the world than they would be here. It is also the case that uh, the young, the young vote uh, is also very, very invested in these uh, issues. And what we are not reporting properly is the protests that have been taking place in the streets of Brazil, not only because of the fires, but also because of the revelations about, uh, you know, the kind of collusion that uh, propped Bolsonaro to power, which is now pretty much beyond doubt. And so he's facing also a an internal opposition that is beginning to grow. And his eye is uh, uh, on Argentina. Argentina is very likely to move left uh, uh, again. And uh, if that tendency continues, we would see the geopolitics of the entire region flipping very quickly. And uh, that's exactly what Bolsonaro is trying to avoid. And of course, the real, the key issue here is the economy. The Brazilian economy is not going well. These far-right populists have proved to be as bad, if not worse, than uh, than their predecessors uh, when it comes to the economy. Weird how that often works out. Uh, a final quick thought on this one, Tim, and especially on Brazil's economy. Uh, Donald Tusk at the G7 suggested that if Brazil did not get its act together vis-à-vis the Amazon, uh, the free trade deal between EU and Mercosur may not actually happen or may be delayed. Is that kind of threat likely to focus Bolsonaro's thinking rather more than the derisory offer of $20 million? Well, I'll bow to Oscar's greater knowledge, but 
but I suspect not, because Mercosur is not just Brazil. And are you really going to punish most of South America because of uh, what Bolsonaro has done? Argentina is already in deep trouble. I mean, this would be catastrophic. Having said that, there are other measures. And actually, French pressure here does work. Uh, Particularly Cariocas are very mindful about what uh, the French say about them. So that that may also... (laughs) Divide the elites there. Tim Marshall and Oscar Guardiola Rivera will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Hong Kong's embattled leader, Carrie Lam, has conceded that anti-government protests have become much more serious, but rejected the idea she has lost control. Lam said she is open to dialogue with protest leaders. Starting a dialogue doesn't mean that we will condone violence. If violence continues, the only thing that we should do is to stem out that violence through law enforcement actions. Lam was speaking in public for the first time since demonstrations escalated over the weekend. Police fired water cannon and tear gas at protesters who threw bricks and petrol bombs back. China's Communist Party has warned that it could intervene to quell the violence, but Lam says the city-state's authorities are able to handle the political crisis. The leader of the UK's Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, says he will do everything necessary to prevent a no-deal Brexit. In a meeting with opposition leaders, Corbyn said he would not push for a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson that might halt legislative efforts to stop no deal. Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, has pledged to leave the European Union without an agreement at the end of October unless he can renegotiate the UK's divorce from Brussels. And today's Monocle Minute reports that Taiwan's tourists are being given the chance to spend a night at the self-ruled island's presidential palace. It's part of a competition that is trying to boost Taipei's tourism numbers. For our discussion on the world's most impressive presidential palaces and which might be best suited to visit, head over to monocle.com. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Tim Marshall and Oscar Huadiola Rivera. Well, let's move on slightly because one other subplot of the recently concluded G7 conclave was US President Donald Trump's curious outburst of outreach towards Iran. Iran's Foreign Minister Javid Zarif was a surprise visitor to the G7 and Trump later said he would be open to meeting Iran's President Hassan Rouhani. Rouhani himself sounds equivocally enthused at the prospect, stating that he has no interest in participating in a mere photo opportunity and that the US would need to lift sanctions against Iran in advance. Uh, Tim, first of all, if we remove the personalities from this, and in at least one of these instances, don't we wish we could, is a meeting between the presidents of the United States and the Islamic Republic of Iran a bad idea? It's always good for leaders uh, to meet. George Orr is better than war war, as Churchill said. However... I mean, Rouhani's already poured cold water on it. Um, I was a bit surprised at the headlines. Trump has three times this year said, I will meet Rouhani. True. He last said it in June. So tell me what's changed. Well, I'll tell you what may have changed. Um, not that much, except Macron invited uh, Zafari, the foreign minister, to come to Paris on Friday. There's no way that didn't go reasonably well. Otherwise, he would not have invited him to come on the Sunday to the G7, Mm. knowing that Trump might not like this. Trump was told at lunch on Saturday, you know, the guy's coming, everybody was told, it was not a bolt from the blue for them. So there's clearly been progress on getting Iran to come in from the cold again. The 
technicalities of it is that they're supposed to enrich uranium only to 3.5%. They're enriching at 5%. Who cares? Well, if you can get to 20%, you can rapidly get mm. to weapons-grade material. So there's been some sort of progress in getting them to come back in. If they come back into the deal at that point, maybe the two leaders can meet. But the reason they've come to the table, only well, tiptoed to the table, is because Trump is absolutely making the pipsqueak on the Iranian economy. They're in all sorts of trouble. So I, I don't see that this leads to the deal being salvaged and peace breaking out, but it is an opening which you might be able to follow. Uh, Oscar, is President Rouhani worried to be concerned that this is just going to be another photo op in the what has become the tradition of the Donald Trump, Kim Jong-un set pieces? He doesn't want to be an accessory, does he, to Donald Trump's, I mean, really uh, overweeningly obvious desire for a Nobel Peace Prize? I mean, that might be the case, but I, I tend to agree with Tim that uh, there is uh, a lot of hope for progress here. I found myself that during the weekend surrounded by half of the United Nation, uh, Nations and they were uh, these, uh, you know, the, the, the political advisors. And uh, they are uh, taking these conversations seriously. Part of the reason is that, uh, uh, you know, a you know, further catastrophe for the Iranian economy might hit not just them, but the entire the rest of the region is already very unstable there. Uh, and uh, they don't want uh, to have to deal with uh, the repercussions of that. Having said that, there is also a lot of concern about the weaponization of economic sanctions in general. And that's something that uh, many negotiators and mediators around the world would like to uh, stop. And uh, yes, as Tim, as Tim put it, you know, Trump has said that he, he, he would be ready to, to talk to, to Rouhani. And uh, I think he is. He knows this sort of thing uh, uh, gives him kudos. And uh, it will be in, in the best interest of everybody uh, for those conversations to continue. Uh, Tim, Rouhani is, of course, uh, like any president of Iran, not the final decision maker where Iran is concerned. Is it clear, though, that what the Ayatollahs want? How fearful are they that a an integration or reconciliation with the world, uh, and which means an integration with Iran's enormous and young and ambitious and restless population, might not work out too well for them? What they want is regime survival. Mm. And, and this is why Trump actually repeats every now and again, we're not looking for regime change. He said uh, yesterday, I'm looking for leadership change. That's the sort of very small olive branch, whereas the massive stick is, I'm going to screw your economy until you come round to my way of thinking. So as long as they got regime change, and they will stick it out and stick it out and stick it out, because there remains, despite the young population, a significant amount of support for the revolution. Also the revolutionary guard remains in charge. The Ayatollahs remain in charge. Rouhani has poured cold water because he's in a very delicate political position that if he's seen to count out to the Americans, the hardliners who hate him say, right, you're on, you're on your way out. So all, all these sort of what should be extraneous factors uh, play in. But, but the, the regime wants regime survival above all else. And that, that's one of the ways to understand as long as they think they are going to survive they will hesitate to come to the table. Well, and that has to do with the with the economy. The if economy, the economy goes yeah. uh, really badly, they know that will affect their, their uh, grip on power. We should recall that uh, we still have uh, Ajatollah Ali Khamenei's reported uh, uh, fatwa in 2003 uh, in, uh, you know... Uh, 
explicitly coming against uh, Iran's uh, getting nuclear weapons. So that, that that's still there and it has to do with the politics and, and economics of the situation and with their survival. Okay, well, finally, on the news wrap to the US, where the pharmaceutical firm Johnson & Johnson is $572 million worse off after a judge in Oklahoma ruled against them in the first of thousands of lawsuits precipitated by the United States opioid crisis. More than 400,000 Americans have died from opioid-related causes in the last 20 years, not all of those drugs legal. 6,000 in Oklahoma. Uh, two other pharmaceutical companies uh, have settled out of court with the state already. Johnson and Johnson do plan to appeal. Um, Tim, there is a general principle uh, in play here, which I suspect Johnson and Johnson may be appealing to, which is that they are manufacturing and selling legal products. Yes, as as were the cigarette companies. Is the obvious comeback. Who then knew yeah. that uh, what they were selling was deeply harmful before it became widely known and continued to sell it. Now, th this is different, but it is worth pointing that out. The case against them is, is that they, they knowingly and deliberately said to the doctors, don't worry, we've tested all this, that and the other. People aren't going to get hooked on it. So the doctors began doling it out left, right and centre, although you could argue there's a responsibility on the doctors to know more of the science. I'm sure all this came out in court. So the case was made by the Attorney General of that one state that you knowingly misled the doctors who then doled them all out like smarties to the people who became hooked on them. You have caused the opioid crisis and all those deaths. I'm fining you $570 million. That's the case. It is appealed. I suspect the appeal will come back on exactly what you said. We just make this stuff. Hmm. Uh, you have personal responsibility for taking it. The doctors have responsibility for doling it out. Very briefly, for, just for context, Oscar told me that the share price went up. And that's because um, they were expecting... No, they wanted a $17 billion. And also for context, they're worth, Johnson & Johnson, $365 billion. Their profits last year were around about $20 billion. So they can absorb... <laughs> even if they lose it, this 500-odd yeah. million. Uh, in, the, in one of those weird contexts in which $572 million is both clearly a great deal of money and yet also very clearly not very much at all. Um, Oscar, what Tim mentioned there is what strikes me as one of the, the weirdnesses of the American healthcare system such as it is, and it is this, this desire to pathologise and medicate almost everything. I'm sure both of you have had the same experience I have had with, with British GPs where you go to see them complaining yes. that you're sick and they <laughs> yeah. just say... And go you, away! You, well, exactly. You go there and say, I'm, sick I, new, I, I'm sick, I feel terrible. Yeah. And the doctor says, yes, you feel terrible because you're sick. Go home and lie down. Yeah. And, and also, <laughs> take an ibuprofen. You can buy them at the chemist. Yeah. <laughs> but but what what is different about America? Why this sort of extraordinary desire to prescribe medication? Uh, it should be obvious. Uh, on it's big money on the one hand. I mean, pharma is just uh, huge. But on the other hand, there is uh, these uh, uh, you know sort. There is this culture of. Uh, uh, internalizing uh, uh, these things so the entire the entire medical profession uh, ha is is always being developed un under the, the the notion that uh, uh, you have to take uh, uh, responsibility you have to respond you have to to fix the problem and this is a, a, a bit of a quick fix but I have to say and, and I may be moving off course from your question here but what what interests me as a lawyer about this case is the inventiveness of uh, judge uh, Balkman. 
uh, he didn't go for the sort of usual corporate responsibility, which is why I think I think Johnson and Johnson are going to be in trouble to play the card uh, of uh, there is no direct uh, causality here, which is exactly what they did in uh, in the previous uh, uh, part of this case, and that's because uh, the judge and the prosecutors are looking at public at, at a, a very interesting interpretation of public nuisance, meaning what is problematic here is misleading your consumers, lying to them, and actually colluding in order to uh, uh, you know uh, to bury to bury a truth that allowed doctors to lower their standards. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, uh, the interesting thing here because there are uh, close to 2,000 more cases about to be filed in various states, including Ohio and so on. And that kind of precedent might be very, very interesting. Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Tim Marshall, thank you both. In a moment, the latest opinion from Monocle's editorial floor. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage, as do the same angry voices. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8am Zurich time, 7am London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24 or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's design editor, Nolan Giles, looks at why a crackdown on retailers in public spaces ought to be cause for concern. The perfect public space should be a hot topic of conversation these days. As our cities become denser and our private space continues to shrink, we increasingly rely on places such as parks to enjoy our leisure time. But city parks should also be places of commerce, and a good vendor, whether selling frosty beer or a range of newspapers, creates vibrancy and an essential public service. So, a recent ruling in New York capping the number of newspaper, book and art vendors within its leafy parks has had members of the city's creative community up in arms. Finding retail space in an urban centre can be costly for entrepreneurs and parks can provide a good first patch for what could become a fledgling company. We're not advocating for parks to be packed with hawkers, particularly the chintzy kind, but planners might be wise to focus on quality rather than just quantity when it comes to public park retail. For Monocle, I'm Nolan Giles. Thank you, Nolan. That was Monocle's design editor, Nolan Giles. For more views and opinions from Monocle's editors, subscribe to the Monocle Minute, available at our website. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Yolin Goffan and Louis Allen. Our studio managers were David Stevens and Bill Luti. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 